0: Hello, this is Scott Gents. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Sandbox Story, which is an interview with my friend, Dr. Vince Brandes. Dr. Brandes brings a unique perspective from a career that's been deeply involved in industry relations and government advocacy activities. Dr. Brandes,
1: welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thank you, Scott. It's been a uh, longtime goal of mine to make the list of the great attendees uh, from uh, Bob Steinmetz to Art Epstein, and it's a, a very lengthy list of uh, celebrities and, and big uh impact players in optometry and ophthalmology. So thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. And before we get started on stories of optometry in our profession, I want to go back to your upbringing. Um, You're a Chicago kid who loves the Green Bay Packers. Explain that one to the audience.
1: Oh, (laughs) that one actually, uh, Dr. Steinmetz always gives me grief about that one. But growing up, uh, I was born in 63. So growing up, then uh, there was Chicago Cardinals and the Chicago Bears and the White Sox and the Cubs. The Southsiders were Cardinal and Sox fans. Northsiders were, were uh, Bear and Cub fans. And then when George Hallis wanted to have the entire city to himself, he kind of pushed the Cardinals out. Uh, and so we couldn't become Cardinal fans because we were not a happy. I was like three years old uh, to cheer for a team that couldn't stay and, and fight for the south side. So uh, one of the guys my grandfather knew was a fullback named Jim Grabowski, went to U of I and was a Southsider and he was drafted by the Packers. So we became Packer fans. And of course, the famous coach, Vince Lombardi, started there uh, his, uh, a little earlier than that. And they were a winning team. And so we were Packer fans ever since. Well, I know you weren't named after Vince Lombardi
0: because you are named after your dad, Vince Sr., and in one of our early podcasts one of your comments to me was how interested you were in some of the backstories and the cool aspects of backstories and you have a really interesting one your dad owned and operated something i think called
1: Pepe's shell station Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that so my grandfather started in 1939 he bought uh, he actually borrowed money from his girlfriend's mother who eventually became my grandmother to uh, buy this small gas station and Then he turned it into uh, two gas stations and a large service center. And then my dad took it over and my uncle worked with them. And I grew up in this gas station at an early age. I remember 12 years old. Uh, For those young people in the audience, there was something called full service where you didn't pump your own gas. So I was a gas jockey and I fixed tires and and did things that a full service gas station provided. Uh, When I was about 14, beginning of high school, my dad tried to show me how to be a mechanic. And I'll never forget after uh, stripping an oil plug for the second time, he said, you're definitely going to college. You have zero mechanical aptitude. Uh, and uh, the rest is the kind of history. I got involved in optometry by my local optometrist. Um, and then uh, my dad you know, had some health problems, sold the gas stations. But uh, my brother didn't even follow in his footsteps. But it was a definite, unique upbringing in the sense that I worked with all my uh, great uncles, they were all retired, almost retired steel worker, retired mailman, retired uh, electrician, and so I would work with them, and they would teach me things about life, teach me things about work ethic, teach me things that you know my dad maybe didn't have the time to teach because he was so busy with the two gas stations, and he also had a third side hustle when he was an engineer on the e j and e railroad. So my mom raised us, my dad was always working, and um, he and my mom never went to college. So it was their goal to have all three of us go, and we all did. And and, um, two of the three of us have advanced degrees, and I know that made them proud. Back in those days, that service industry of hardworking people who work
0: with their hands to serve others sort of feels like it had a contributory effect to the way optometrists are serving their community today can you draw any parallels the things you learned and taking care of people who came to
1: this full service station that you ended up uh, finding parallel to optometry uh absolutely number one my dad was involved uh with the limited time he had in the kiwanis club in the lions club in the chamber of commerce so i knew in an early age to build your business optometry when i started at ico i knew i wanted to go into a private practice and start my own eventually because that's what I was raised in you know and and it was something that if you give the care to that customer it's the same way as giving that care to the patient and my dad was a big believer in supporting the community and it was when something was wrong he wanted to make it right and then there were times I remember where he said I'm not going to please this person like we've had with patients so then he would recommend them to go to a different service station or a transmission place because he couldn't find whatever their problem was. One of of his famous sayings was, I can't fix the car if you're still driving the car. So a lot of times people would say, well, I can't give it to you. I I need to get to work or I need to do this. And he would always say, you got to give it to me for a few hours before I can tell you what's wrong with it. Sometimes with our patients, that was a great parallel. They want us to fix their eyes without coming into the office. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I've, I remember days where my dad would take
0: us to the local service station, and it became it was sort of a, a gathering place. Of course, that's different than an optometry practice, but I'm sure you have incredibly fond memories of those days. You said that your optometrist influenced you to go to optometry school. When did you start getting
1: care, and for what did you get care? Oh, I was highly myopic at an early age, and I was fitting the old PMMA lenses. And then, um, you know, pre-internet, uh, I was interested in the Air Force and Navy, so I wrote to them, brought the requirements in, and handed it to my optometrist, Dr. James Bruenthal, from Riverdale, Illinois, uh, an ICO graduate, very big into uh, BV and, and uh, vision therapy. And i never forget, he looked at my little uh, uh, information, and he kind of callously tossed it aside and said, you're never going to be a pilot. You have bad vision. That was crushed. And he could tell uh, that I was, so he called my mom the next day and he said, look, I didn't mean to be so hard on your son, but I didn't want him to get his hopes up. You know, he can't fly with his vision. Uh, And if he likes math and science, maybe he wants to shadow me and learn about optometry. And so none of my family members, uh, my dad's brothers and sisters were into science. My one uh, older aunt went to DePaul, which is eventually where I went for music. Um, And so I was kind of the first one in in our family on both sides to go to college. And to learn about math and science, I thought, well, why not optometry? And I was so impressed with Dr. Blumenthal and what he was doing with my eyes that he eventually wrote my letter of recommendation to ICO. And he's the reason why I'm an optometrist.
0: That's really interesting. What do you remember the most about that? Fascination did did he teach you about PMMA lenses and and the math and science behind them or was he teaching you about optics and
1: refractive air? what what was it do you remember specifically that really grabbed you uh, actually even though I never practiced it and as Dr mano would probably say barely passed BV and BT when I was at ICO uh, it was it was that I mean at a young age you know I would he kind of I got a part time job there and, and I would work with the young people you know to, to learn uh, about you know convergence insufficiency and some of the basic soft uh, issues that he would have me work on. He had a full-time tech, but I would kind of help her. And it was just kind of very uh, cool to see these kids learning and, and, and getting better in school and doing better uh, in sports just by his uh, visual uh, uh, therapy practice. It was a really, uh, pardon the bad pun, an eye-opening experience. So that's what I really enjoyed. But then when I actually got into school, It wasn't something that I felt a passion for. So you've talked a lot about ICO. You're a very proud uh, person connected to the
0: Illinois College of Optometry. You graduated there in 1990, and then you did go into private
1: practice. So um, tell me a little bit about that early part of your career. So I graduated in 90. I worked for uh, two uh, part-time, as a part-time doctor, uh, Mark Skowron and and, uh, Carl Caesar, who's no longer with us, great mentors of mine. Mark, his daughter actually became an optometrist. She graduated a few years ago. Michelle, they taught me about the business aspect. You know, Scott, we had Neil Gelmar. That was our practice management course, which I didn't get a lot out of. Uh, but working with Carl and, and, and Mark, I got a lot out of how to you know get on a vision plan and you know how to uh, pick a buying group and, and just learn things that ICO didn't teach me. So I always wanted to start my own practice and I was living. Um, in an area of the Western suburbs that there was a need in the town of Bartlett, Northwest suburb. There was one optometrist in town um, and he moved his practice to another location, but the practice building he left was rented. And I saw an ad in Chicago Tribune, optometric practice for lease." And I was like, wait, what the heck is that all about? So I met the landlord of the building who was an orthodontist and it was all set up, You know, all the walls, you know, the lengths of the rooms and all that. All I had to do was paint it and put new carpet down I was ready to go get the equipment. And it was great because for the first you know, year, a lot of the patients would come to me because they remember the OD in that office. It, I wasn't the same OD. Uh, and then sadly, uh, after he moved there, he passed away of cancer very young. And so he sold his, the widow sold his practice. So I got a lot of patients just from being in that location and built my practice that way um, from 93 to 07 until I sold it. And then I went back to work with uh, college. So
0: you also became very involved early in your career with the Illinois Optometric Association. You eventually became president, the youngest ever to hold that position at that time for the IOA. And I'm curious
1: if you could tell us what got you motivated to get involved in organized optometry? Well, it goes back to my dad and my family. So my dad Uh, Actually ran uh, for state rep, um, didn't win. Uh, That was afterwards. But we were always a politically involved family. You know, when people would, uh, or families would sit down, they talk about school. They talk about you know the day. And my dad and mom, to a lesser degree, would talk about the local things in Chicago. There were 50 aldermen. The aldermen were kind of kings. Uh, They controlled whatever went on in their in their ward. And my dad was very close to the alderman. I went to school with uh, two of his sons. And so I understood at an early age what political things you need to be involved in if you want to get ahead. It could be something as a building permit. It could be something simple as getting your garbage can replaced. So I was aware of the political process. And then when I got into ICO and joined the IOA Student Club, we were at the time studying, both of us and our colleagues, studying for very hard, tough pharmacology pharmacology exams that when I was going to graduate, I couldn't use, which made no sense. I actually took the Wisconsin boards. I took the Texas boards, because at the time um, those states were allowing those um, medicines. And so I was either going to, I actually almost uh, a lot practice in Delavan, Wisconsin, Um, HH Greenberg, uh, never forget the guy. And eventually I did not buy it because I wanted to stay in Illinois. So it was either, Sit there and, and practice substandard care or be part of the solution and so i got involved with dr tom lawless and dr dr gordon and uh, then we hired a new exec mike horseman and so i was part of the legislative team as a key person and then that led into society president and um, before i actually became society president the current society president said you should run for the board you have a passion for this you understand politics we need someone like you on the board so i joined the board in '94. In And then we passed uh, therapeutics in 95. I was a small part of that team. Uh, I was led again by Dr. Lawless and even Pete Kehoe uh, had had more major roles. But then when it came time to get orals, I was the chairman for the orals effort um, years later and uh, was very proud of the work that we did and how we established it then uh, for TPAs because boy, it was tough getting through Dr. Lesher's courses and taking boards and the fact that I couldn't use those drugs but I could drive, you know, north to uh, you know, Wisconsin or go east to Indiana where I was born and use those drugs made absolutely no sense.
0: One of the advantages of having guests like you on Sandbox Stories is to try to give my entire audience regardless of age, context as to how optometry was in the past. And you talk about understanding politics, watching your dad stay connected to a Chicago alder and, and simple things like replacing a garbage can and understanding that's how you get things done. And while we still have local politics and legislatures at a state level, very few people in general, much less those in optometry, stay really involved in local politics to get their garbage can replaced. And, and so I find it fascinating that you connected those dots and understood that it was important for you to be a part of the team, not the person even when you were the leader for orals, it wasn't just because of you, but you connected the dots from your upbringing to do that. And I wonder if part of the reason we're challenged today with legislative activities as they are in our legislative profession, because people just don't have that much connection the way you did as a kid to the legislative process. Am I making too much of that?
1: No, not at all. And I I actually now in my role um, I am the first optometrist lobbyist by AOA. I'm a contract lobbyist, so I, I work for our association in DC, and I'm also a, a part-time fundraiser for the AOA PAC. And in reaching out to uh, volunteers, I mean it's a small percent of our AOA members are donating the PAC, and you know the, the the small group is doing the work for the majority, as it is even at a state PAC level. But in the phone calls that I'm reaching, whether it's um, I won't mention names, but uh, two, AOA former past presidents, as well as people who um, most of this audience would would recognize, um, they're fed up and they're not supporting PAC. They're fed up with the whole process, whether that is the toxic environment that is in Washington um, or the level of disconnect that we have. My vote doesn't count. Um, they don't feel like it's a necessary part. Uh, maybe it's an elitist view. Like... I'm a, I'm a doctor. I don't want to have to get my hands dirty and, and 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 go door to door or even put up a sign in my office or, or house. Um, I don't want to donate the pack uh, because if I donate the pack, uh, this has been more in my recent work. Vince, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars. It better not go to said party. It's got to go to that party. Don't you understand what a pack is? We support people who support us and. You know, I'm not sure who, Vic Connors was probably one of the guys who started this term. I know Pete Kehoe used it a lot. Optocrat. And uh, my family knows I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not even an independent or libertarian. I'm an optocrat. I vote on who supports my profession. And lately it's becoming more challenging because the polarization, whether it's the Supreme Court ruling or just in general, people feel like, well, how could you support this guy or gal when they are so anti-choice or anti-life or anti-gun or pro-gun, it's, I've never encountered it before. And it's, it's unsettling to see that. And so that's like people, I would say, in their 40s to 70s, their attitudes have changed. What's more of a concern is the people under 40 who understand the process, but just feel like they don't want to get involved. Um, and even donating a, a, a $10 a month is something that they don't want to do, even though it's not a financial reason, it's more of a personal principle thing. And then when they don't get what they want, uh, or like how come this didn't get passed, or how come you didn't, you know, Medicaid or I'm sorry, Medicare rates dropped again? Well, did you read what the AOA put out? Yes, we took a cut, but the cut was a lot less than we were gonna get if it wasn't for AOA and AMA and the other healthcare groups. So without us, the old expression is if you're not. At the table, you're on the menu, and if we don't continue to educate our younger doctors as to how impactful there is, you know, someday, um, hopefully not in the future, too soon, but you know, stalwarts like Scott and Vince and Pete and others are going to retire and not be involved. So we're looking to hand that torch and hand that baton off to others to say, please pick up this, otherwise we are going to be in the same situation that for many years, Scott, ophthalmology has been in, you know, they've always had that approach where we're surgeons. We're not going to go to see a state reps, uh, you know, chicken dinner, or go to a golf outing. We're, we're real doctors. And that's how we have not just in Illinois, but across the country been able to get these scope changes because we're able to network with these individuals who at some point may be the governor at some point, may be the next congressman so you have to start at an early time but we can't have people who aren't willing to go talk to those individuals and they might even be patients of theirs that to me you got me on a little tangent here but that to me is is one of the most if anyone in this audience is listening if your patient this is not a violation of hipaa if your patient is a member of the general assembly or involved in politics they hold elective office You should let your state association or national association know. Just make sure that you ask them. As long as they say, of course, you can let them know that I'm your congressman. That way, AOA has a key person. You may be an unwilling key person, but I guarantee you that legislator is going to listen to you, the doctor, because he's trusting you for his care than someone else who might just be an optometrist in his hometown
0: well you're a shameless political fundraiser and i give you incredible credit for that because everyone understands that they don't always want to give of their time but that the process is about political funding and the basics of what you're telling us is that if you can if you can sort of plug your nose and understand that you need to let the the AOA and the state associations direct funds to those that when they're in office should support the optometric cause as a whole that if we can just be giving them the funds we can afford, $10 a month, my goodness, people spend that on Spotify. And, uh, and, and that's your advice. Is, do I understand it that it's let them direct the funds where they know optometry will
1: get the biggest bang for the buck? Yes, and even better, I mean, I can't speak for other states, but I can speak for Illinois and I can speak for AOA. They will send you to an event. So if you're saying, well, my congressman sent me a, uh, an invite, it's $1,000. I, I, don't, I don't have it. I don't want to spend a $1,000. Contact the state or the state association or the AOA, and they will potentially be able to send you to go. That's what these PAC dollars are used for. State PAC, only for state candidates and office holders. Federal, only for federal. So uh, the other thing, too, is that if you are giving to your AOA, that doesn't mean that Wisconsin or Illinois, your state, gets that money. They have to stay separate. If you're giving to your state, AOA doesn't get that money. You have to donate to both. And some people give more to their state, especially if they're pushing for expansion, certainly understand that. And so if you have to figure out what you wanna prioritize your money on, it's no different than prioritizing things in your business. Do you really want that OCT upgrade? Yes, but you really can't afford it. So you gotta figure out how you're gonna do that. And so I always get, well, what's my ROI? What's my return on my investment? And depending on if it's a state or federal issue, Federally, it's easier because there are so many entities, so many vision plans, uh, so many ophthalmologists, so many insurance companies who would love to take away things that we already have or block any potential growth or expansion of services um, at the VA. One of the recent issues, we finally got optometrists to practice at their highest level in the VA. Sadly, I'll bet there, if I had to take a poll, just do a doodle poll of, of optometrists, not members just optometrists in America, I'm going to guess there's probably less than 25% of optometrists know that we have a United States senator who is an optometrist. And that's ridiculous for them not to know that because he was a congressman for six terms before that and just got elected to his third term as a senator from Arkansas, Dr. John Bozeman. And so we have had others in in office. Mike Whitaker from Kansas was a U.S. congressman. Uh, And we've had uh, Mike Kreidler from Washington State, but to have a sitting senator helping us to get the VA and he sat on the VA committee to help optometrists practice at our highest level to provide care for the vets um, was a big, big win. And without Dr. Bozeman, I'm not sure we would have got that or it would have been a lot harder. Well, I can say that I was taught by really impactful, political,
0: politically active optometrists that you need to go to all the fundraisers, carry a check. Sometimes you're going to go to somebody's fundraiser that you didn't vote for. You're going to get mail from people soliciting funds when you go to these events that are from both parties, maybe people you align with, people you don't. But through those times, I was, you know, opportunity to to be side by side with the governor of Wisconsin, who helped pass most of our laws and supported us. And then I stood next to a a vice president of the United States at a fundraiser, and I had a a state senator in Wisconsin who's now the highest ranking, um, uh, the longest serving senator from the state of Wisconsin uh, in the U.S. Senate. You know, in my office as a representative of my office locale when she was a state senator and in you, when you do these things you feel like you're representing what every optometrist wants which is best care for our patients that legislation can
1: afford and i just thank you for all that work you've done um, it's really important yeah it has and, and one of the reasons that when i left ico in august of 21 i wasn't sure really what i was going to do and and uh, John Himes and, and Matt Willette asked me if I wanted to participate you know, as a lobbyist in a fundraiser. And it is not too easy to ask someone for money. But when it comes from a fellow optometrist, uh, I've been you know, successful in some degree. But what I'm seeing is a lot of people feel that their money isn't getting what they want. And just to make it clear, the AOA or any of our states have never bought a vote. With this money, we buy access and I know Illinois does it similar to AOA, you can ask your state, the money you gave as an association, what was the percent of return in the sense that those people you supported won their race or became you know newly elected if it was an open seat? Where you can say, well, I think I don't have it up top of my head, but I believe it was over 90%. Joe Ellis sent something out not too long ago for November Um, probably I think was closer to 93% of money that AOA invested, AOA PAC invested into candidates and current incumbents who are friends of ours won re-election or election in this case. And so it's been something that's been significant for us to hopefully have those individuals because that access point is when you want to get a meeting, when you want to be able to talk to a member, whether it's in Illinois or at the national level, a lot of times you won't be able to get that audience. And by getting the audience, by supporting the campaign, that's the way you open the door to talk to that person.
0: Fantastic. So I want to recognize the couple of decades of work you did for the Illinois College of Optometry. And in a a similar way, your your goal and your role around government relations was so critical. I mean, you were fundamentally responsible for working with the team and leading the team through funding at ICO and so many activities that got legislators to better understand optometry. I'm curious why you can reflect on the importance of that work that you did at a college of optometry, much less your alma mater, to to help, again, legislators
1: understand optometric education. Tell us a, a little bit about why that work was so important. Well, I'll start and end with what just recently happened for many years. Um, any type of appropriation or people may say earmark pork was blocked and recently, the process was changed in which you could apply for a federal grant an earmark appropriation, and you were hoping that your congressman or congresswoman would support you. So, uh, this- Jobs or or campaigns was to work with ICO's Congressman uh, Bobby Rush. And Bobby's a patient of ICO. He's been involved going way back to Boyd Banwell, and he's been involved in the community since he was an alderman before that. And he understood that we take care of his constituents and we don't ask citizenship status when you walk in the door. So people who need the care get the care. So when I went to Bobby and said, we would like to have some money to expand our glaucoma service. He asked me why, and I said, it affects the constituents of your district more than a district in the West suburbs. However, if someone wanted to come to us from the West suburbs because they didn't have insurance, especially someone who wasn't a citizen, we would still be able to take care of them. That was the deal. sealer right there. He was ecstatic about that. The way the appropriations process worked is he had 10... Entities that he could put to forth through Congress to see if they could get funding. We originally asked for $500,000. We eventually got $300,000, and President Biden signed it. It was an amazing process to see how they say there's two things in life you don't want ever to be seen made: sausage and laws. Well, I saw what we went through with with uh, with Bobby on that, and he was leading office too. He's no longer going to be ICO's um, congressman. There's a, a Jesse Jackson's son, Jonathan, is now the new congressman. He'll be sworn in tomorrow. Uh, and so it was to lose Bobby was was huge. Uh, now, hopefully, ICO and, and staff there will, will reach out, um, and I will as a lobbyist as well, to uh, Congressman Jackson. But what Bobby was able to do was give us $300,000 to help those individuals to expand our glaucoma service. And for those of you who are maybe thinking, well, that's just pork, Vince, no that's lives, that's families, that's productivity, that's jobs. And for those of you who don't believe the money is going to go to glaucoma, it is a federal crime if you do not use the money for what the government gave you the money for. So if ICO wanted to, you know, they're doing something with Brady Hall, they want to deflect that money and pivot to Brady Hall, that would not be a good idea because it would be against the law. It's got to go to the glaucoma. Now, could it go to Another um, another medical care within ICO, they'd have to uh, apply to the HHS for um, ancillary use, but is, as I don't know, so I'm no longer there, it is intended to go for the glaucoma service. Yeah, and definitely will be. So who are other people
0: that you could recognize um, in addition to yourself that are exceptional in advocacy? Because this is all about advocacy. You've mentioned Joe Ellis, I, I know of somebody like Lori Grover. Who are some of the people that would come off the tip of your tongue um, that are good examples, great examples of
1: advocacy-minded optometrists in our, uh, in our industry today? So I'll start with a young person whose father has been involved in optometry forever. Uh, that's Dr. Bob Moses from Indiana. He's got several offices in Indiana, both his son and daughter our optometrist. And uh, that young lady's name is Dr. Jenny Cohn. And Dr. Cohn is amazing. She is going to be the next AOA PAC chair, only the second woman to ever be chair. She has uh, the drive, the passion. She's articulate. She understands it. And she can relate to the younger audience, the younger ODs, uh, male and female, to say why I'm getting involved. Uh, she's married to an optometrist. Um, they practice in both in Illinois and Indiana. So Jenny is an amazing um, key person and fundraiser for our profession. Um, you know, other people like Tom Cullinane from Missouri, uh, Pete Kehoe, who I mentioned. Uh, there are others who, uh, Dorothy Hitchmont. There are so many people who I've worked with and in, in, uh, Ron Rawls from uh, Iowa. There's um, People that, Wiley Curtis, that keep coming to my mind here, who have been so helpful, Hillary Hawthorne, these individuals have done a lot, not just for the dollars. And I've had doctors say to me, hey, I'm just too busy. I'm a busy lecturer. I have four practices. I have three kids. I can just give you money. And that's fine. But then there's no excuse then. If you can't support it, You know, can we send you to an event? Can you help us with this congressman by just going to his office and talking to the staff and educating this person? On whatever the issue might be. So if you really want to get involved, there's a way to get involved. And um, I'd be happy to privately chat with anyone about this because it is something that we need to get a bench ready to put our second string in because um, old Scott and Vince won't be doing this for the next 30 years. Well, I'm going to give you know the audience a chance to connect to you
0: Um, Anybody that wants to get in touch with me will get connected to you. And what I've always loved about our conversations is the passion about the process and the want for just anybody who's got a bit of time. And I know you will feel bad when this is done that you forgot somebody's name. So if we've left you out, folks, it's not by intent. I put Vince on the spot here. But the, the If this even trips a little bit of a trigger in your mind to, to try to support the way optometry can be um, put forth and be advocated for, please let us know. This is the time that the industry needs you to think about this as something of an adjunct to the way you spend your time supporting your community, uh, supporting your practice, your family. Uh, we, we beg and, and, and plead for your participation. I want to ask you one other thing about being in the industry. You've served Different, different kind of companies as a consultant um, in different areas, right?
1: Lenses and laser vision correction. What's been the most compelling about those efforts? The, the ability to work with optometry and ophthalmology specifically in the surgical realm. Um, I recently uh, am a KOL for Zeiss with their new procedure, SMILE. And it's great to see how optometrists need to learn more about SMILE and if they don't have a surgeon who uses this technique, they can find one to do it. Um, I work with a father-son retina practice who are trying to grow their practice within within optometry and saying, "Look, we do what we do well, and you do what you do well. So there's no reason for me to be, you know, monitoring your your mild uh, diabetics with with a retinopathy. But if they need an anti-VEGF, we'll send them back to you to monitor." And I think. When we graduated, it wasn't as um, holding hands kumbaya, it's getting better. And there are still areas of the country where it's very difficult, where co-management isn't used as high as maybe it could or should be. Um, But that's really what I I love about that, trying to educate them. And um, I was able to go to the uh, American Cataract and Refractive Surgeons um, most recent event or conference in April in Washington. I wasn't part of the official conference this was more a users group but I was the only optometrist there on the panel and I was the only optometrist on the panel uh, that anyone can remember in the last 10 years uh, and they're finally understanding the role of the primary care optometrist to a bigger degree and I hope that continues and for those states who get expansion of scope I think most qualified fantastic surgeons are okay with us doing the minor procedures it's the ones who maybe aren't not as um, talented surgically wise and they're doing basically medical, medical optometry, those are the ones who are a little nervous about us doing more that they might think they should be doing. Um, but it's such a, a, a great way to continue to work with, with the, the two O's and always in the patient's care as number one. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your family, You have many kids,
0: you have at least one grandchild, you got do. a, a dog you love. Tell us what's going on
1: in the family so i have uh two children matt and nikki uh, my son matt is an attorney um in chicago does mergers and acquisitions my daughter nikki just graduated with her master's degree in communications and marketing uh, she's in north carolina my son-in-law is in the faa there miles is five years old um, he is um, a green bay packer fan even though carolina panthers are there of course and the charlotte knights are the AAA a uh, team of the white Sox. so He's also gonna be a White Sox fan if he doesn't know it. And then I have four kids with my wife Leanne and uh, they're Liam, Chris, Katie and Thomas. Um, Katie is actually uh, in her second year at University of Pikeville's uh, osteopathic medicine program. Uh, So we're very proud of her and the the three boys are are doing great things in in their own um, careers. So we're very blessed. My wife Leanne um, works uh, in Beloit, Wisconsin for ABC Supply, and um, she has a heck of a commute, but she's a very dedicated employee, and she's the director of marketing for a subdivision uh, called ACM. I know you're you're really proud of your family, and I know they're proud of you.
0: Um, so let's close it up like this, right? You, you got a locker room full of ODs, and give us your best Vince Lombardi speech, so you can motivate the listeners at the end of this to where the profession's going and what you hope to see happen as you retire someday from these many activities to see the profession flourish while um, you know, others
1: take it over. In politics, in legislation, it's always easier to kill a bill than to pass a bill. And we've had in Illinois, attempts for us to have our glaucoma privileges taken away or potential at the national level, things that we have taken for granted and to, you know, way back in the 80s for us to be considered physicians under Medicare and then eventually Medicaid and being included in the Affordable Care Act. So if you enjoy everything that you have now, be careful because someday they could chip away and we could lose that. So do you want, after all the effort you've given in your training and maybe did a residency, you want that taken away from you or you want to be told as to where you want to be able to practice based upon your level of skill. Right now, if you're in Oklahoma, and your spouse decides to move to Florida, why would you want to give up that ability to practice to your highest level? Because Florida doesn't allow you to do what you do in Oklahoma. So you're actually limiting your career by going to one of the nine or 10 states that will allow you to practice to your highest level. Whether you're at a corporate office, whether you're in a private practice or a group practice, We as optometrists need to practice to our highest level. One final comment. I'm 59 years old. Before I die, I predict an optometrist will do anterior segment surgery and will perform a cataract extraction. See if I'm right before this happens. It's certainly an interesting prediction.
0: Vince, I can't thank you enough for being my guest on Sandbox Stories. Your many stories show how passionate you are about the profession, and I'm thrilled to have heard that passion come through today. Thanks so much for all you've done for the profession and for your willingness
1: to guide the next generation forward, my friend. Thank you. We're all optocrats. Let's keep uh, this, this train running on the track. Thank you. Fantastic stuff
0: from Dr. Vince Brandes. To the audience, thanks for attending, and until my next Sandbox Story. Be great at all you do.